There'll be no more kneeling, no more bowing, no more kneeling after a while, no more weeping, no more crying, no more weeping after a while, and before. I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave, and go home to be my Lord, and to go home to be with my Lord, and be free. It's with great pleasure today that uh, I have this opportunity to introduce our keynote speaker, whom I met many, many years ago. I think it was October 1968, to be precise. And I had the opportunity to get to know him better as a teaching assistant and uh, over the years in various capacities. Our speaker, this may come as a surprise to some of you, is a native of Santa Barbara, a person who attended Santa Barbara High and who will be placed in the Hall of Fame of Santa Barbara High in just a few weeks' time. This Pulitzer Prize winner has toiled for many years in, Africa, in the field of African-American history. His dissertation at UC Berkeley became a book that was published by the University of Chicago Press in, I believe it was 61 or 62. It's called North of Slavery, one of those classic works which you might consult. And he's written several other works since then, including Been in the Storm So Long. For the most part, he's worked on the 19th century and Reconstruction topics, the aftermath of slavery. And then, more recently, he's moved into the 20th century and the World War II era. One of the things I learned from him was to appreciate the importance of African-American music in U.S. history as well as African-American history. And our speaker is particularly fond of the blues and B.B. King. And then given that there was one other professor, uh, Lawrence Levine, who similarly emphasized folklore and music, one could get a very, very rich education in history and historical methods in that distant age, in that distant time. Our keynote speaker holds the Morrison Chair in History at UC Berkeley. He's been there for a number of decades and will, I think, I hope, trust, be there for a number of more years. I'm very indebted to this individual. 
if for no other reason than that uh, I, he may, I hope he's forgotten that I still owe him for bailing me out on February 19th, 1969, a time when the police were just arresting anyone. You didn't have to do anything. Just show up on campus and you might get arrested. So this is in a small way a repayment of that debt that I owe. So now a Santa Barbara native, Professor Leon Litwack, will present his paper, Trouble in Mind, African Americans from Emancipation to the 1990s. Thank you, Doug, for that most gracious uh, and accurate uh, <laughs> introduction. It's, it's uh, nice to be back in Santa Barbara, but particularly nice to be here for this particular occasion and to offer a kind of um, impressionistic overview the African-American experience from emancipation to um, yesterday. Toward the end of the Civil War, on a plantation in Tennessee, the overseer came out to the fields to inform the slaves working there that they were no longer slaves. They were now free men and women. The slaves listened carefully, and one of them thought to ask, How free? Some 137 years later, that question persists. How free? How free is free? In the 1860s and a century later in the 1960s, two major struggles, two major civil conflicts were fought over the meaning of freedom in America, over the enslavement of black people and over the legally sanctioned repression of their descendants, over the bonds of slavery and the bonds of segregation and disfranchisement. In the 1860s and in the 1960s, Partly for military, partly for political reasons. The need to win the Civil War, the need to win the Cold War. Major efforts were undertaken to restructure race relations. And in both decades, the United States made commitments to black freedom, civil rights, and equal opportunity that were very difficult to sustain. From their first days of freedom, black men and women were forcibly reminded that lofty ambitions and evidence of advancement might be resented rather than welcomed by whites. 
That is, while maintaining that blacks were incapable of becoming their social, political, or economic equals, the dominant society betrayed the fear that they might. What had alarmed the white South during Reconstruction, after all, was not evidence of black failure, but evidence of black success, evidence of black assertion, independence, advancement, evidence of black men learning the uses of political power. Or as someone put it, the closer the black man got to the ballot box, the more he looked like a rapist. For most Americans, progress explained this nation. Progress validated the American dream. But for blacks, unlike newly freed immigrants, progress could be an enemy, detrimental to health and safety. Evidence of success made every black person vulnerable. The historical record is replete with examples of violence and harassment aimed at successful blacks, those in positions of leadership who owned farms and stores, those suspected of saving their earnings, those trying to improve themselves, those perceived as having stepped out of their place. The simple fact was that many whites equated black success with uppityness, impudence, pretensions toward racial equality. He think he white was the expression that summed it up. Neither accommodation nor hard work guaranteed blacks their civil rights. Some 30 years after emancipation, between 1890 and World War I, in response to perceptions of a new generation of black Southerners, born in freedom, undisciplined by slavery, and unschooled in racial etiquette, and in response to growing doubts that this generation could be trusted to stay in its place without legal force, the white South denied blacks a political voice, imposed rigid patterns of segregation, sustained an economic system that left little room for hope or ambition, and enforced ignorance, as Du Bois put it, by denying equal educational resources to blacks. The criminal justice system, the law, the courts, the entire legal profession operated with ruthless efficiency in upholding the absolute power of whites to command the subordination and labor of blacks. And to sustain this system, whites employed terrorism. Every Negro in the South, John Dollard wrote in 1937, knows that he's under a kind of sentence of death. He does not know when his turn will come. It may never come, but it may also be any time. Between 1880 and 1968, some 5,000 blacks met their deaths at the hands of white terrorists, lynch mobs. As many, if not more, were quietly murdered in isolated counties and dumped into rivers and creeks. In the early 20th century, some two to three black men and women were hanged, burned at the stake, or quietly murdered each week. Nothing so dramatically underscored the cheapness of black life. In those days, a black man recalled, Weiss needed to have a license, as he said, to kill anything but a nigger. We was always in season. The lynching, 
became public theater, a participatory ritual of torture, mutilation, and death, a voyeuristic spectacle prolonged for the benefit of the crowd, which severed bodily parts, distributed as favors and souvenirs. The details of these lynchings can numb the mind and deaden the senses. And this was not the outburst of crazed fiends. The rituals were often festive occasions, family affairs, with children hoisted on the shoulders of their parents so they'd miss another spectacle. That, indeed, what's most disturbing is the capacity of ordinary, often educated and trained people, not so different from ourselves, to kill or to torture as they did and to be able to justify their actions or reinterpret them so they would not see themselves as evil people but rather as dispensers of justice and guardians of communal values. And the atrocities were carried out in the most churchified communities by some of the most respected, God-fearing citizens. No wonder clergymen thought it best to avoid the subject altogether. But the terrorism meted out by white mobs rested on the racism of genteel society. That is, if mobs lynch blacks with calculated sadistic cruelty, historians and the academic sciences were no less resourceful in providing the intellectual underpinnings of racist thought and behavior, validating theories of black degeneracy and cultural and intellectual inferiority. Trying to justify on scientific, so-called scientific or historical grounds, a complex of racial laws, practices, and beliefs. Popular literature, newspaper caricatures, commercial products packaged and marketed as suitable household and yard adornments, minstrel shows, vaudeville, and then the cinema depicted blacks as a dehumanized race of buffoons and half-wits. The total effect of popular culture was to establish in the white mind a Negro who was sometimes comic, sometimes bestial, but in either case less than a man or a woman. In the face of white hostility, blacks drew inward, constructing in their communities a separate world, a replica of the society that excluded them. Within rigidly prescribed boundaries, they improvised strategies for dealing with whites. And sensing they were bound to lose if any protracted racial, racial war broke out, most blacks opted to accommodate, to make the tough decisions necessary for survival. To survive was to veil their inner feelings in the presence of whites to wear the mask. Will I drink to keep from worrying and I'll laugh to keep from crying? Will I drink to keep from worrying and I'll laugh to keep from crying? I keep a smile on my face so the public won't know my mind. With the normal outlets of expression and protest closed to them, black men and women were forced to find alternative ways, verbal and nonverbal to articulate their concerns and feelings, sometimes in a language deliberately incomprehensible to whites. None did so more eloquently in the early 20th century than the blues men and blues women. 
Many of them illiterate, disreputable, living on the edge. What bound them to their audiences was a common history, shared experiences. Ain't it hard to stumble when you got no place to fall in this whole wide world? I ain't got no place at all. To a remarkable degree, the blues enabled a new generation of severely repressed Jim Crowed black Southerners to express emotions and feelings many whites thought blacks incapable of possessing. As in the chilling fantasy described by Furry Lewis, who was born in 1900 and raised in the Delta at Greenwood, I believe I'll buy me a graveyard of my own. I believe I'll buy me a graveyard of my own. I'm going to kill everybody that have done me wrong. Or in the despair voice by this Memphis bluesman, what you going to do, mama, when your troubles get like mine? Take a mouthful of sugar and drink a bottle of turpentine. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. Drop down, mama. Sweet as the showers of rain. And few could match the emotional depths plumbed by blues woman Bertha, Bertha Chippy Hill, that plaintive, chilling lament, I'm going to lay my head on a lonesome railroad line and let the 219 pacify my mind. Like the blues, humor voiced the tensions of people caught in a marginal world and helped them to deal with daily realities. And both blues and humor had a common theme, that is, the betrayal of expectations so deeply rooted in the black experience. The belief that the success creed was for white folks only. That even when blacks played by the rules and did everything that whites demanded of them, the results were pretty much the same. In fact, all too often, when blacks entered the contest, the rules changed. As this, as this story suggests, passed on in various versions from generation to generation. After the Lord had created the earth, he created the white man, the Mexican, and the Negro. So one day he told them, go out and get you some rocks. The white man, being industrious, went out and got a huge rock. The Mexican got a middle-sized rock. And the Negro, being lazy, got a pebble. Later on that evening, the Lord said, I'm going to turn these rocks into bread. Well, as a result, the white man had a lot of bread. The Mexican had a sufficient amount, but the black man only had a crumb, and he stayed hungry. So the next day, the Lord told them the same thing. This time, the white man got a great big rock, the Mexican a somewhat smaller rock. The black man brought back a whole half of a mountain. That evening the Lord stood before them and said, Upon this rock I will build my church. The black man said, You motherfucking liar, you're going to make me some bread. <laughs> well, few speeches, few editorials could make that point 
with greater eloquence. The story, the story suggests a perception of white America as unbeatable, where the rules and the laws are made, enforced, and broken by the same people. A familiar theme in the black experience. To succeed is to fail. There seems to be no way to win. So black leaders, editors, preachers, they thrashed about with their programs, their manifestos, and their sermons. But most blacks sense they'd been done in. The optimism expressed by black leaders and editors could not overcome the realities that most blacks faced, no matter how progress might be measured, whether homes, income, property, blacks in the early 20th century lived in a grim and unpromising world. And the future seemed equally bleak and unredeeming. Bluesman Willie Brown, born in 1900, employed a chilling apocalyptic imagery to convey that feeling. Can't tell my future. I can't tell my past. Oh, Lord, it seems like every minute sure going to be my last. One minute seems like hours. Hours seems like days. Yes, minute seems like hours. Hours seem like days. Through the first four decades of the 20th century, the mechanisms that regulated the place of black men and women remained mostly in place. No wonder the cynicism ran so deep in black America during World War II. How could white Americans express outrage over the plight of Jews while remaining indifferent to the lynching and brutalization of black Americans? How could a Jim Crow army fight for a free world? How could black Americans fight abroad in defense of freedoms denied to them at home? Fight for what, one asked. The war doesn't mean a thing to me. If we win, I lose. So what? A black youth about to be inducted into the army composed his own epitaph. Just carve on my tombstone. Here lies a black man killed fighting a yellow man for the protection of a white man. If blacks needed to fight for the right to fight for democracy, as the NAACP kept insisting, some blacks could find no reason to make that kind of commitment. Horn player Howard McGee, a pioneer of bebop, adopted no conscious strategy to avoid military service. He simply told the army psychiatrist how he felt, articulating a bitterness no doubt many might have shared with him. Man, why should I fight, he asked. I ain't mad at nobody out there. I wouldn't know the difference. If he's white, I'm going to shoot him. Whether he's a Frenchman, a German, or whatever, how the fuck would I know the difference? The army informed McGee could not use his services. <laughs> and he reflected, I wasn't ready to dodge no bullets for nobody. And I like America, but I didn't like it that much. <laughs> I mean, it's all right to be a second-class citizen, but shit to be shot at, that's another damn story. <laughs> but the threat of Nazi racial theories not lost on black Americans. And most responded, as did heavyweight champion Joe Lewis, the hero of black America, 
And he said, America's got a lot of problems, but Hitler won't fix them. But even as Franklin Delano Roosevelt committed the nation to a worldwide struggle for freedom, black soldiers faced a consistent denial of that freedom, coupled with extraordinary acts of discrimination, violence, and humiliation. Nothing illustrated that humiliation more graphically than what these black soldiers encountered in Salina, Kansas. As we entered the lunchroom on the main street, the owner hurried out front to tell us with urgent politeness, you boys know we don't serve colored here. Of course we knew it. They didn't serve colored anywhere in town. The best movie houses did not admit Negroes. There was no room at the inn for any black visitor, or there was no, and there was no place where he could get a cup of coffee. You know, we don't, we don't serve colored here, the man repeated. We ignored him. Just stood there inside the door, staring at what we had come to see the German prisoners of war who were having lunch at the counter. We continued to stare. This was really happening. It was no jive talk. The people of Salina would serve these enemy soldiers and turn away black American GIs. If we were untermentioned in Nazi Germany, they would break our bones as colored men in Salina. They only break our hearts. What they had witnessed was by no means rare. And for many black GIs, that had to be, in many ways, the ultimate humiliation. To bluesman B.B. King, for example, that was what he called the eye-opener. To look at the black experience during World War II is to discern few changes in the interlocking mechanisms governing race relations. The Jim Crow car is still dirty, said the bluesman. The Jim Crow car is still dirty, the color line is still drawn, yet up there in Washington they're blowing freedom's horn. And yet, in some significant and far-reaching ways, in how the war dramatized the disparity between American democratic rhetoric and racial practices, in how it revolutionized black consciousness and expectations, in the ways military service abroad gave black soldiers a new perspective on the provincial nature of their segregated society at home, in the heightened racial tensions and challenges to Jim Crow, World War II marked a shift in the relationship of African Americans to American society. And so nearly a century after the Civil War, on some new battlefields, Montgomery, Selma, Birmingham, Little Rock, Chicago, Boston, Los Angeles, another struggle would be fought over the meaning of freedom in America. This time it would be fought in the context of a new generation of blacks, a rapidly changing world, and a new climate of political necessity. The restructuring of race relations became necessary only to give the United States credibility as a leader of the free world and in the battle for the hearts and minds of emerging third world peoples. But it would not be easy, as you all know, even today, some three decades later, the scenes remain vivid in the memories of those who experienced them and who watched them as they were flashed on television screens across the country and throughout the world. The beatings in the train and bus stations and in the jails, the thousands of arrests, the police dogs, 
the high-pressure fire hoses, the bombings, the clubbings, the murders. Few could forget as well the songs, the marches, the raised expectations. What these mostly young men and women did was to capture the imagination of the black community and of much of the nation. They mobilized the black community like it had never been mobilized before. They involved their parents in the struggle. They taught them by example that the way it used to be did not have to be. The Civil Rights Movement struck down the legal barriers of segregation and disfranchisement in the South. The achievements were impressive and far-reaching. But much of the optimism about redeeming America would be disappointed. Most of the gains made by the Civil Rights Movement, as Martin Luther King conceded, were obtained at bargain rates. The desegregation of public facilities cost nothing, neither did the election and appointment of a few black public officials. But the move to the next level of progress, that would entail costs, economic costs. And that was no easy step. For all the gains made by the Civil Rights Movement, many of the same tensions and anxieties persisted and festered. Even as the Civil Rights Movement ended the violence of segregation, it failed to diminish the violence of poverty. Even as it struck down legal barriers, it did nothing to reallocate resources to redistribute wealth and income. By the 1980s and 1990s, the burden and cost of racial change had become too much to bear for growing numbers of white Americans. The barriers to racial justice had become more subtle, more elusive, far more intractable. How does one reach into the centers of power, corporate and political, where the most critical decisions are made affecting American lives? That proved baffling. This time there were no Birminghams or Selmas or redneck sheriffs or demagogic governors, no police dogs or fire hoses on which the civil rights activists and the media might focus their attention. The nation would find comfort instead in blaming the victims, in scapegoating and stigmatizing and policing the most vulnerable, in vilifying and demonizing the black poor, in pseudo-intellectual exercises calculated to demonstrate that black poverty was rooted in inferior intelligence, that the failures of blacks lay not in historically rooted economic and social inequalities, but in the unfitness, incapacity, and moral, even genetic shortcomings of the race. And, after all, if it's their fault, then we don't owe them anything. But, of course, that argument is more than a century old. More than a century old. After emancipation, the United States walked away turned its back on the legacy of slavery, walked away from the human devastation that slavery had sustained and protected, walked away from accountability 
for centuries of unpaid forced labor, a labor indispensable to the nation's development and to tens of thousands of private fortunes. The only debate about compensation in 1865 was whether or not to compensate slaveholders for the loss of their slaves. Most white Americans could not be persuaded to accept the argument or the idea that positive government might be required to correct habitual inequality. Instead, they embraced the popular notion that the racial problem be left to the free market, that any preferential treatment or protection for black people be rejected. And that same argument would be repeated ad nauseum in the 1890s to justify national indifference to the savage repression underway in the South. And the same argument, dressed in a more sophisticated methodology and vocabulary, would find resonance in the literature and rhetoric of the racial backlash 100 years later in the 1990s. This time it would be articulated in the guise of dispassionate social science, with some of the authors reminding readers of how they had once upon a time marched with Martin Luther King. Somebody asked this question, is there an opponent of affirmative action over the age of 40 who doesn't claim to have personally offered Rosa Parks his seat on that Montgomery bus? The defectors were largely northern whites who had found civil rights commendable as long as it was confined to a renegade south and to integrating buses, toilets, and lunch counters. But when it came down to discrimination in housing, jobs, schools, north and south, when it came down to schools in which children were segregated not by law but by income and tradition, when it came down to sending their children to public schools with substantial numbers of minority children, to busing school children across segregated residential patterns, those were different matters altogether. Involving hard choices white Americans were not prepared to make. Whites, it seemed, would rather abandon the public schools and cities than share power and community with non-whites. When the talk came down to compensatory justice for the victims of racism, when the talk came down to reparations for centuries of unpaid labor, when the talk came down to affirmative action for three centuries of negative action, to giving up privileges and priorities long available to whites simply because they were whites, those were different matters too. And many of the old allies of the movement began to slip away. And defections were especially rampant in the North among what someone called the morally stylish. Slavery was abolished more than a century ago. Jim Crow dismantled some two decades ago. But we continue to live with the consequences in our racial attitudes, in our institutions, in our social dislocations. White supremacy is legally dead, but racism remains the most debilitating virus in the American system. Deeply embedded in our psyche and culture, 
nourished by historical and cultural illiteracy, more cleverly coded in expression, able to adapt to changes in laws and public attitudes, assuming different guises as the occasion demands. Examples of conspicuous black success as depicted on primetime sitcoms and by newspaper pundits mask a larger reality. Even as the black middle class increased significantly in the civil rights era, a larger number of black Americans were left to endure lives of quiet despair and hopelessness, trapped in a mire of failing schools, bad housing, inadequate health care, hostile policing, and discrimination, no matter how measured by statistics of unemployment and poverty, including 40% of all black children, by the gap between whites and blacks in wealth, housing, health care, life expectancy, by the number of children attending schools in racial isolation, or by the number of blacks in prison. 12% of the nation's population, 50% of the prisoners. It all added up to a grim chronicle. The United States remains, in critical ways, two societies, separate and unequal, confounding the popular notion of a level playing field. When some 34 years ago Martin Luther King found himself in Memphis to support a strike of sanitation workers, he already anticipated the backlash that would jeopardize even the surface changes made by the civil rights movement. To open up the American dream to everyone, King came to recognize, would require far more massive changes than most Americans were willing to concede. Equal access to economic resources and political power, a fundamental redistribution of wealth, income, and power, a thorough restructuring of American society, government, and economy that is a fundamental shift in America's thinking and in America's priorities. As he confided to a newspaper reporter shortly before his death, for years I labored with the idea of reforming the existing institutions of the society, a little change here, a little change there. Now I feel differently. I think you've got to have a reconstruction of the entire society, a revolution of values. No wonder J. Edgar Hoover pursued King so relentlessly thinking him the most subversive man in America. And perhaps he was right. Near the end of his life, some have argued, King had become in so many ways a revolutionary. Of course today, especially on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's birthday, political leaders feel free to use and define King any way that suits their purposes. The radically outspoken King is rarely, if ever, featured or even acknowledged at the annual birthday celebrations where his reassuring and comforting I Have a Dream speech is played over and over again. He can be made to be so conveniently unthreatening. King, of course, scoffed at the notion that civil rights legislation alone had created a level playing field. As he put it, if a man is entered at a starting line 
in a race 300 years after another man, he would have to perform some impossible feat to catch up with his fellow runner. Or put another way, equality, as one black youth explained, equality is like Whitey holds you by the belt at the starting line until everyone else is halfway around the track, then he gives you a big slap in the rump and he says, Go, baby, you're equal. It takes an unusual man to win a race like that. It's easier to shoot the starter. Thirty years ago, black aspirations found soulful expression not only in the civil rights movement and the eloquence of Martin Luther King, but even the names black musical artists gave their groups, suggesting a confident faith in progress, the belief that America held a special promise, the Supremes, the Miracles, the Marvelettes, the Invincibles, the impressions sang with such certainty, we're a winner and keep on pushing. James Brown boasted in song, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And Sam Cooke projected perhaps the ultimate optimism when he sang, I know that a change is going to come. But 30 years later, the beat, the names, capture a different mood. Snoop Doggy Dog, NWA, Niggas with Attitude, Outcast, X-Clan, Ice Cube, Black Star, Black Alicious, Tupac Shakur, Dr. Dre, Urban Underground, Coup, Notorious B.I.G., Dead Prez, Lady of Rage, ODB, old dirty bastard. Perhaps with Sam Cooke in mind, WC in the Mad Circle rap, yes, 1997, you all need a damn thing changed. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five came from an urban war zone and addressed urban blight. It's like a jungle. Sometimes it makes me wonder how it keeps from going under. So don't push me, because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. Declaring themselves rebels without a pause, public enemy admonished young blacks, we got to fight the power and don't don't, don't believe the hype. Chronicling the enormous social costs of institutionalized racism, the urban tensions and struggles, the pain and the frustration, the rage and betrayal, the feelings of hopelessness and self-destruction, the lyrics and tempo of hip-hop frightened and dismayed much of the American public. My life is violent, sang Ice-T, but violence is life, peace is a dream, reality is a knife. Laquan looked at the corruption of government and concluded, imprison the president, incarcerate the Congress, levitate the Pentagon. Now we're making progress. NWA entered the top 20 chart with Fuck the Police. In his classic line, some police think they have the authority to kill a minority. Houston's Ghetto Boys added, 
Police brutality is now a formality. They're kicking our ass and we're paying their salary. And KRS-One asked a question, again, deeply rooted in the black experience. Who will police the police? You were put here to protect us, but who protects us from you? Every time you say that's illegal doesn't mean it's true. You were put here to protect us, but who protects us from you? It seems that when you walk the ghetto, you walk with your own point of view. Looking through my history books, I've watched you as you grew, killing blacks and calling it the law and worshiping Jesus, too. They've been called street poets, prophets of rage, a scream from the bottom, a distillation of black anger, nihilism, and resistance. But mostly, the rappers articulate in their own way a growing despair of being trapped in deteriorating post-industrial cities and schools. Tupac Shakur, for example, described his neighborhood as essentially a jail cell. can barely walk the city streets without a cop stopping me, searching me, and asking my identity. Frustrated and furious, he struck back, feeling no remorse for his actions. How can I feel guilty after all the things they did to me? Sweated me, hunted me, trapped in my own community. One day I'm going to bust, blow up on this society. Why did you lie to me? I can't find a trace of equality. Some 30 years after the civil rights movement peaked, many in a new generation of black Americans experienced rollback, backlash, and resentment, a breakdown in the enforcement structure of civil rights, a legacy of the Reagan-Bush era. Romantic memories of previous struggles only magnified the despair. In 1997, a young black articulated his sense of recent history. He said, we recognize more than our elders know the incredible job they did in the 1960s. But you can't celebrate for 30 years scoring a touchdown. Not when they're still playing the game. It's that tough reality that still resonates. The bottom line is still there, a Birmingham black observed in the 1990s. The Klansman has pulled off his robe and put on a three-piece suit. Nearly a century ago, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote, the problem of the 20th century is a problem of the color line. That problem persists. But in the 21st century, it will be fought out and resolved in an America one-third black, and Latino, and in a world in which the majority of people are non-white, Asians, Africans, Latin Americans, peoples of the Middle East, many of them with long memories, with a vivid sense of history, with an appreciation of the West's critical role in shaping today's world, but with an equally vivid appreciation of the West's legacy of racism, colonialism, technological arrogance, and program violence. In reporting the tragedy of September the 11th, commentators kept using the words unprecedented, unbelievable. Where was their sense of history? 
Did they know nothing of the legacy of slavery, the legacy of racism? September the 11th was neither unprecedented nor unbelievable. Terror is what African Americans were forced to endure for centuries. For black Americans, terror and the fear of terror profoundly shaped and circumscribed their lives and devastated, in many cases, their aspirations. But Americans tend to suffer from historical amnesia. We seem determined to forget our history, and still worse, to think ourselves immune to history and to the lessons of history. For centuries, enslaved labor, segregation, lynchings, massacres, discrimination, terror, and every form of humiliation and brutalization imaginable took a heavy toll. None of the tens of thousands of victims were ever memorialized. Their stories and legacies are all but forgotten. Nor did the victims command sufficient power to retaliate successfully. And for centuries, we as Americans remain essentially indifferent to the misery, the terror, the program of violence inflicted on other peoples, here and abroad, even by our own government, in the name of race, ideology, profit, Christianity, a perverted sense of national security, and a simple-minded, unreflective, orchestrated, flag-waving patriotism that divides the world into good and evil and demands the right to be the best, the strongest, and the proudest, the chosen people of divine destiny. With his demonic songs and guitar licks, bluesman Robert Johnson conveyed what it was like to live with fear, uncertainty, betrayal, and daily terrors. Terrors that were impossible to escape. I gotta keep moving, I gotta keep moving. Blues falling down like hail. Blues falling down like hail. Oh, blues falling down like hail. Blues falling down like hail. And the days keeps on reminding me there's a hell hound on my trail. A hell hound on my trail. A hell hound on my trail. Uh, September 11th, those hell hounds forced all Americans to recognize what it was like to live with terror. The song that provided the title for this lecture, Trouble in Mind, like the African-American Odyssey, the song encompasses enslavement, a tortured freedom, a new beginning in the North, and both triumphs and retreats. The song began as a slave spiritual, and in 1860 it would have sounded like this. I'm a trouble in the mind, I'm a trouble in the mind. I ask my Lord, what shall I do? I'm a trouble in the mind. It re-entered folk tradition in the late 19th century as country blues, reflecting the restlessness of a new generation, the first born in freedom. If I'm feeling tomorrow like I feel today, I'm going to pack my suitcase and make my getaway 
because I'm troubled, I'm all worried in mind, and I've never been satisfied, and I just can't keep crying. With the great migration in the 20th century, the song moved up north, along with hundreds of thousands of black southerners. There it would be revived in a new setting, in an urban and industrial setting. Well, trouble, oh trouble, trouble my worried mind. When you see me laughing, I'm laughing just to keep from crying. And some years later, rapper Chuck D., a public enemy, would add his own refrain, I got so much trouble in my mind, on my mind. I got so much trouble in my mind, on my mind. I refuse to lose. Here's your ticket. Hear the drummer get wicked. So it's all very different, and it's all very much the same. The dawn of the 21st century, it is a different America, and it is a familiar America. A black preacher in Mississippi, when asked to assess the impact of the civil rights movement, responded this way, everything has changed and nothing has changed. Thank you very much. Freedom, oh freedom, oh freedom after a while. And before I'd be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home. To my Lord and be free.